turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. I'll take this moment to just add some commentary on Clayton's perfect announcement about the Bible reading plan. Um, he, uh, he, he, he didn't mention one thing, and that is we're, the, the plan is a chronological reading plan. So if you've never done this, you know, the Bible is written not necessarily in chronological order. There are things that had happened at different times. And so you'll see this, but I, I think it will really be helpful for us to, to look at this in light of our past studies, in light of our current study in Jeremiah, to see how many of the pieces fit together. And I think doing this together as a church body will help us not only encourage one another, but to see new things and, and hear what other people have to say and give us insight. And so encourage you to consider being a part of that in the new year. More to come on that. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen and as it had been told to them. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, would you open our eyes now to see wonderful things from your law. We thank you for your word, that it is the means of revelation by which we know you, that we can understand you, and that we can continue to grow in our knowledge of you, that it is living and active, that it will not return void, but it will accomplish all of your purposes for which you send it out. So would you do that which you would have done among us today as your people, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this account of Jesus' birth in Luke chapter 2 is, I think, likely the most well-known. And I would say equally as likely or maybe slightly less the most favorite. I don't know if polls have been taken, but it's just one of those that's, at least in our culture, very endearing. We've grown accustomed to it. There was a day and time uh, when this was read in, in more than just church settings. This was a known 
kind of telling of the birth of Jesus, and it's why I picked it to preach since Christmas fell on Sunday. I just couldn't think of a better text to go to than this one, and, uh, and, and so hopefully you can appreciate that. But if there's any pushback, it's the fact that it is so familiar, and when it comes to familiar texts, there are challenges before us because we, we get so accustomed to the words. Even in reading it this morning, I almost said something like, and they were sore afraid because in my mind it was on cruise control, and I went back to the old King James reading that we heard growing up. And so that's the challenge with familiar passages is we fail to miss what is right in front of us. We do this in life. We go into retail stores and we walk up and down aisles and we fail to see what was right there all along until one day we're like, ah, they do have that. Or maybe it's your favorite menu and, oh, they do serve chicken and waffles. All this time I could have been having the, you know, the the, the perfect feast. Um, Men have this, especially when we come to the refrigerator you know, we, we open it, and, and we're, we're begging our wives to show us where the milk is because we just cannot find it. The fridge is so familiar. People talk about driving up and down the same street. People have mentioned driving up and down US-1. I've never seen your church, you know. And then once you see, oh, there it is. And so the familiar has that, that, that danger of causing us or preventing us, rather, from seeing things that are right in front of our eyes. But the other challenge with familiar texts is that we can be tempted to try too hard to find something that's unique, that we begin to look and maybe get a little too creative in, in texts that are familiar with us. And I know as a pastor, this is a struggle for me every Christmas and every Easter because we've gone through you know, this before and how do I make it interesting or how do I make it uh, um, uh, understandable or, or unique or whatever and it's a temptation that I have to push back on because... I found in my own life personally, the Holy Spirit does a much better job at this than I do, and I should probably trust him to do that among us today, that he'll do that quite well in showing us what he wants us to see from this text. I'm not bringing anything new, anything unique, anything creative to Luke chapter 2 today. I hate hate to disappoint anyone, but I'm just going to say that from the outset. If the Spirit shows you something that you haven't seen before or brings to light something in a new and fresh way, then praise God. But if not, allow the familiar to shore up your faith. Allow it to strengthen what you know to be true. All that Christ has done on our behalf and means for us in this life and in our life to come. Because joy is ours, for the Lord has come to save us because we could not save ourselves That alone is enough for all of us to praise him today. Now, I am going to draw special attention to one phrase in the text, and you already know what it is because of the sermon title. It's the line about the peace that is ours. This is what I want us to particularly focus on today. I want us to see and to leave here assured that he has brought us a peace that passes all of our understanding. It's beyond our comprehension, and he has given it to us with whom he is pleased. Now, the immediate question that comes up when we read that text or I say that is, with whom is he pleased? And Scripture tells us that, that without faith it is impossible to please God. So the people with whom he is pleased are those who, by faith, are trusting in Christ. Faith that is mentioned in Hebrews 11.6 has an object. It isn't faith in faith, or it isn't just believe. It's believe in Christ. There's an object of our faith. We are called to put our trust in the one who has come, specifically as we've seen in John's prologue as the life, uh, or rather the light of life. 
And why did John tell us that he recorded all these things? That we might believe and by believing have life in his name. So that is why we, we, we celebrate, celebrate the coming of Christ, is that he has brought new life for us, that we may have life in his name. And with this life comes his peace that passes understanding. It is peace not only for eternal life, but peace in this life as well. It is a peace that doesn't, it's not that it erases our problems, we know better than that, but it's rather a peace that's in the midst of our problems. It is a peace that carries us through the storms of this life. It's the kind of peace that the prophet Habakkuk expressed when he wrote, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herds in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. This is the peace of which we celebrate. Our peace now that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, the Savior who was born this day in Bethlehem, who is the God of our salvation. And so now looking in verse 1, we see that the stage is set. The earthly ruler of the Roman Empire, he makes his plans to accomplish what is in his best interest. He wants the maximum amount of money to flow into his coffers through taxation. What he fails to realize is that he's accomplishing the purposes of God Almighty. He has no idea what he is doing in this giving of this order. And so in, in, in an effort to get as much money possible, he gives this, this instruction for everyone to travel to their hometown. And, and, and it's hard for us to even think this possible, even in our own day with modern transportation where we could maybe more easily do it than those in this day, how difficult it was for them. Why would people tolerate such a gov- uh, t- tyranny uh, of government? And you see this... You know, you could, you could talk about the power of the Roman Empire and so forth, but this is not unique. I mean, we see this in our own day. Any power that goes unchecked, whether it's government or whether it's a local bureaucracy or whether it's even in a workplace or a corporation, it can even enter into the church, that unchecked, unchecked power will lead those who are in positions of authority to, to unwittingly or without care give out orders and instruction to we, the little people, without any regard for how it affects us. This is how Caesar was ruling the world. He didn't care. He just wanted the most money. So everybody, go to your hometown. And Mary and Joseph, with their unborn child, headed that way. Now, they were in Nazareth, which is north of Jerusalem. Bethlehem is slightly south, so they headed south. But the text says they go up because that's the language of Scripture. To Jerusalem and the cities around it, it was always up even though my mind, I think, down <laughs> because you're going south and I, I'm always looking at it uh, in my brain on a map. And we're told they're going from Nazareth down toward Jerusalem to the city of Bethlehem. And Luke refers to Mary, his betrothed. And we read that in the English and we think more of an engagement, but they were clearly married at this point. Matthew tells us uh, that they were married. Matthew, uh, and, and I think Luke uses this phrase because it was not yet consummated. Matthew tells us that in in, in chapter 1, verse 25. But the fact that they traveled together in this culture and at this point in history is enough of an indication to to be assured they were married. Joseph was of the lineage of David, so his hometown was Bethlehem. That's why they traveled there. And I don't think this is just a, a, a haphazard insertment of information that Luke makes. He's making a point for us to understand that even though Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, uh, his earthly father, and therefore his legal line, was through Joseph. 
And Joseph was of the son, uh, or a son of David. And in this line, so Jesus was born David's son. Upon arriving in Bethlehem, Mary goes into labor and she gives birth to Jesus. And it says that she laid him in a manger. And we're so familiar with this story that that doesn't startle us, but it should. Because of what a manger is and the fact that babies don't belong in mangers. I mean, a manger is a food trough for an animal. It is, whether it's the wooden ones that you see in most of the nativity scenes that people set up, or what it was more likely a hewn-out rock in the ground because of the caves around the area, and that's usually where livestock was kept. I think that's probably more likely. Whatever it was, it was no place for a baby. And so this was, uh, it should be startling us. This past week, Gene LaFaro was at the, our men's Bible study on Wednesday. He, he talked about the fact that the word manger in French, and I'll butcher this, is manger, but it means to eat. And so Gene pointed out that the Lord came as the bread of life or the bread of heaven as he was placed in this. And I found uh, the reference, uh, a number of references to this in my, in my studies this week, and one in particular from John Bunyan. John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress, but he wrote a lot of other things too, including a book of poems for children. And one of those poems says, To his eternal fame and sacred story, we find that he did lay aside his glory, stepped from the throne of highest dignity, became poor man, did in a manger lie, Yea, was beholden unto his for bread, had of his own nowhere to lay his head. Though rich, he did for us become thus poor, that he might make us rich forevermore. Jesus entered our world to first lie in a manger, already demonstrating his substitutionary role that he would be for us what we couldn't be for ourselves, the bread of life. What's even more is that the name Bethlehem means the, the, the land of bread or the fields of bread. So it's as if our Heavenly Father is really driving home a point with all the providential working out of this whole event that he is sending to us food that leads to eternal life. You remember when Jesus fed the 5,000 the day after he had gone across the Sea of Galilee and the crowds followed him? We know they wanted to see a sign, but they also probably wanted another free lunch. That's what Jesus points out. But it's there that he says to them, I am the bread of life. And makes that claim of of divinity. But before he tells them that, he says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on, on him God the Father has set his seal. And so Jesus, early in his ministry, told, told the people who followed him around, his disciples and those who were just simply interested, that he is the one who is the source of this eternal uh, bread, this life that leads to eternal life or this bread from heaven. So because all the inns in Bethlehem, however many there were, were all full and there was no place for Mary and Joseph, he had to seek out whatever shelter he could find in which his young wife could give birth. And the shelter that he found was a place where livestock are kept. And in the ground or in a wooden manger, we can discuss what it was later, but whatever it was the place where the animals were eating that night, there was the bread of life laid to take his first nap. All of our best efforts our food which perishes, all of the promises of politicians, the advice of of talk show hosts and self-help gurus, our food that spoils. Only in Christ can you and I find the true food that leads to eternal life. The birth of Jesus is a call for all of us to believe in him whom the Father has sent, that we might eat of this bread by faith and be saved from our sins. That's the gospel. It is the declaration. It's a statement 
that declares good news, that God has saved us from our sins in Christ Jesus. And with all good news, it must be proclaimed. And God selects some of the most unlikely candidates to do this initial proclamation, shepherds. Shepherds who were just out in the fields at night watching their sheep, uh, just doing their jobs, carrying on as they would any other night. And they get the surprise of their lives. As a single angel shows up, not in appearance as would be normal, but with glory, it says all around that lit up or shone all around him. So this was beyond just a, uh, another shepherd playing a practical joke and dressing up in a funny costume. This was a supernatural event that they were witnessing. And as they experience this, they do what everyone we see in Scripture who witnesses an angel, they become filled with fear. Now, what little we know about angels, we know enough to know that they aren't what the medieval paintings are of them with the little chubby cheeks that are cute that we might make statues of to put on our hearths. They were more fearsome than that, likely warriors or appearance of of warriors and, and so forth, so much so that everyone who seems to see them falls down on the ground. And so this angel then brings with him this glory, like the Shekinah glory that we might think of from the Old Testament so they know that what they are seeing is not of this world. And the angel's first words are like most angels' first words when they show up, fear not, which I always think is a little humorous. Like, stop being afraid. Just stop it, you know. Just stop being afraid because you're scared to death, not because someone is talking to you, but it's because of who the someone is that's standing before you. You know, for the shepherds, this was a physiological experience. You know, their hearts were beating at this point. The blood was rushing. Their breaths were shortened. And they hear this angel say, fear not. And I imagine as the angel began talking and going on to explain that it was somewhat of a calming effect, particularly what he had to say, that there was a baby who was born in Bethlehem tonight who they said is Christ the Lord. They tell the shepherds directly that this baby is Christ, which is the word for Messiah. This is the promised one. That's who's lying in the manger in Bethlehem. And they call him Lord or Kyrios, the word for Yahweh. So Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And the shepherds here are some of the first to hear after the birth this message. He then tells them how they can find and see with their own eyes. Go to Bethlehem. There may be more than one baby that you find in Bethlehem. This will be the only one who's laying in a manger. And when the angel had provided the information to the shepherds, probably just as they started to calm down and their heartbeats returned to to normal, then all of a sudden a whole host of angels, you know, a whole choir pops out in the sky. And I think if they could have later explained away the single angelic visitor, uh, they might have been able to do that to convince themselves, like, no, we did not see that, you know. This was, like, beyond denying. It was just, you know, there was no way. This was, this was a life-changing event as they look up in the sky and see a multitude of angels who are praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. So just as their blood pressure returns to normal, now it's risen again. And they realize that God is communicating something very special, something spectacular that would forever change their lives. The message is this. God is glorified on earth by bringing peace into the lives of those who were his enemies. All of us were enemies of God. That's what Romans 5.10 tells us. That was our state before we were born again. 
And so God has made peace through the reconciling work of His Son to be born here as a human, as a babe, so that He might die for our sins to reconcile us to God, we who were His enemies. So this declaration by angels is stating that the Creator God, who is holy and perfect, who is righteous and just, who is all-wise and all-good, who is full of love and compassion, He is pleased with those who rebelled against Him, who were at odds with Him, who literally hated Him. And it was all made possible through His perfect plan, which He set before the foundations of the earth, Ephesians tells us. The covenant of grace made to bring about redemption to the praise of His glorious grace. The babe announced by angels, now lying in a manger, would accomplish this so that you and I might become those with whom God finds favor, that we might be called his children, the ones with whom he is pleased. And the angels were then gone as quickly as they had appeared, and so the shepherds look at each other and say, let's go see. So they left. I don't know what they did with the sheep, but they left. We can wonder about that, and, uh, and they go to Bethlehem. Now, it's interesting to note that shepherds in the ancient Near East were near the bottom of the pecking order, the bottom of the social class. Lepers were probably the only thing lower than shepherds. Part of it was because of their reputation. Part of it was because just the nature of the job. It was a dirty job. And because of this, they could not maintain the the cleanliness standards that the Jewish customs and, and practices required. And so they wouldn't participate in normal worship practices. They also had reputations of being surly and untrustworthy, and so traditions were developed that a shepherd could not give a legal testimony in a court of law. That's how untrusted shepherds were as a people. So I think it's fascinating to think that this is the type of person God sends this first announcement to. And it's notable, too, how these shepherds respond. They receive the news. They believe the news because they acted on it. And then they proclaimed the news. They became evangelists of the gospel. They recognized that it was from the Lord, that is, they believed that it was from Him. They went with haste, we're told, to Bethlehem, demonstrating that they believed. And then we're told that they made known all that they had been told and seen. We're not told the audience. We understand it would certainly have included Mary and Joseph, but the expression there implies that they were telling other people as well, making them evangelists of the good news. They acted in faith. They possessed faith, which we know is a gift from God. They possessed faith, and then they acted in that faith, which tells us something very important about the gospel and about the kingdom of God. Because we typically look at a story like this, and we hear about how shepherds were the bottom of the pecking order in this society, and we think, oh, God's message is even for the least of these, like poor, lowly shepherds but I think we should probably reorient any attitude of condescension because what actually happens is that God, by giving these shepherds the gift of faith, turns them into his messengers through whom the good news has begun to spread in Palestine. This is who God chooses. This is who he picks. This is the way that he works. The same thing happens with his disciples. These weren't noble men, educated or successful. I mean, Matthew was probably the richest among them, and we all know how he got his money. You know, through tax, it was an extortioners, what tax collectors were. So he wasn't a noble person as well. We see the same pattern in church history. We see the same pattern as we look around even our current day in the church, that most, according to our standards of success or education, most believers in the world are not successful, are not educated, 
And my point to this is to say that we're conditioned to think about success and the notion of celebrity that comes with success, whereby we think of famous Christians as being better Christians. But this just isn't so. And even though we probably all know this, our culture works against us in this regard. God's kingdom is often upside down and backward to our way of thinking so that he might show his glory and the goodness of his grace. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you were in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The beauty of this message that was given to the shepherds that night, that God had made a way to be pleased with foolish, weak, low, and despised men and women like us, is what multiplies peace in our hearts. Like that grace upon grace that we saw in John's prologue at the end last week, it is this unending grace that God gives us His peace again and again in Christ Jesus. His peace is ours that our hearts would not be troubled, but would be comforted in the midst of what is happening around us and to us. When life is shattered and doesn't look like what we dreamed or what we thought it would be, and when it looks sometimes like the very opposite of what we ever imagined, when others seem so ready to take from us and never ready to reciprocate when we're in need. When that little legalist inside rises up and shouts that we're worthless, that we've blown it, that we're beyond the love of God. Or when we feel crushed and we doubt and we wonder if we really even get it at all. When we're not treasuring Christ in our hearts or we feel cold in our affections toward him. It is in these times that his peace is so needed and truly matters. It is in the lonely and barren times, in the dry and weary land, that His peace truly passes all of our understanding. But it's there that He meets us and reminds us, I am the Good Shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as a father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. And they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And we're not given the details of who the shepherds talked to beyond Joseph and Mary, but we are told that Mary treasured in her heart all that she experienced in the birth of her son and what the shepherds told her from their experience. We're told, too, that those whom they spoke to marveled or wondered at what the shepherds shared with them. We're told the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen. And this is what we celebrate every Lord's Day, but especially today because it's Christmas, that Christ has come to bring peace to earth by reconciling God's people to himself through the cross. And this should leave us marveling. We should be pondering all that is ours in him. It should raise up in our hearts gladness, glorifying, and praise to God. Why? Because it is through Christ Jesus that we have been reconciled to God. Because of his birth as a man, as a baby, as a human, the Son of God would be able to die to reconcile us 
to God. And this reconciliation not only removes God's wrath, which we deserve, it also grants us all the riches that Christ deserves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, because Christ has come and has justified us by faith. We now have peace with God. And he speaks to us today, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, this peace that is ours is, is indeed beyond our understanding. I would imagine this morning that there are those who long for this peace. Would you grant it to them this morning? Would you help us to see all that is ours in Christ, that the security uh, that Christ accomplishes in his redemption of us, that it is, it is so powerful, so true, so strong that it's unbreakable. No one will ever pluck us from your hand. Would you let that truth seep into our hearts that we would know we are yours, that we belong to you, that you will complete what you have begun, that you will finish the work that you've started. Would you strengthen us in all that is ours in Jesus? Lord, would you cause our hearts to be lifted up that we would glorify and give you praise today for the gift of your son? Would you make us glad in all that we have in Christ? And Lord, would you cause our hearts to be so glad that we speak like the shepherd spoke, sharing with others and proclaiming all that we have seen and heard, that others might know the hope that we have, that we would be ready to give reason for it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.